Welcome to Exagility. I'm your host, John Coleman. Bruce McCarthy, welcome to the Exigility Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Very good, Bruce. Thank you so much. Which part of the world are you in today? I'm in the suburbs of Boston, about 25 miles here in my home office. During the pandemic, I've been very lucky that I already had a home office with the most critical high-tech feature, a door I can close. <laughs> That's very important. Actually, I've got my own door closed here today as well, right. so I can relate to that. I'll be in Boston in early June, actually. I love going to Boston. I get there usually once a year. Mm-hmm. But it's been a weird couple of years, but I'm just back from New York, as it turns out. So my travel is ticking up again, thankfully. I'm just back from Cambridge in London, actually. <laughs> I spoke at the Business of Software conference, and it was good to be back with people again. Yeah, absolutely. I can relate to that. I went to a conference two weeks ago in London. It's a CCon conference and simple little things like seeing which stands had the biggest crowds and which books everybody was trying to get signed and so on. I thought that was really interesting. You don't see that online. Bruce, you wrote two books yourself, actually. And one of them is Product Manager versus Project Manager. You wrote that on your own. And then with some colleagues, C. Todd Lombardo, Evan Ryan, I believe, and Michael Connors, who wrote Product Roadmaps Reload. It, how to set direction while embracing uncertainty. I believe you've got another book maybe in the pipeline as well on stakeholder management. That's right. I'm working on it now with a co-author, Melissa Appel, who's a director at Wayfair, a large product management organization in the Boston area. Really that, in my mind, stakeholder management is the most important skill in product that nobody really teaches. There aren't really any books on it. There aren't any classes on it. It's a little bit like maybe you could watch the old movie, How to Win Friends and Influence People and hope to glean a little bit. But it's really the difference between having a glorious plan that goes nowhere and a glorious plan that your entire organization can get behind and move forward with. It's the difference in my mind between success and failure. I can totally relate to that. We looking forward to chatting about that later on. Before we get into your books, we're going to zone in today mostly on product roadmaps reloaded and maybe we're going to touch on the stakeholder management book. Before we get into that, Bruce, how did you get into product in the first place? Oh, like a lot of people, it was accidental. I, I think as a young person starting out in your career, you may never have heard of product management, and I certainly had not. So I started in various marketing and sales roles. I'll tell you the secret is I wanted to be a science fiction writer when I mm. left school. I was a big fan of Star Trek, of Robert Heinlein, of Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, all the well-known sci-fi authors, and I wanted to do that. It's hard to make a living doing that, I discovered. But as a product person, you can write science fiction and take it to the team and say, how might we make this true? And so that turned out to be my favorite job. I got there indirectly, accidentally, by way of being an entrepreneur. I did a startup in the early 90s in home environmental inspections with my father. And that, like many startups, we did a bunch of prototyping, a bunch of testing, raised some money, tried to go big and crashed and burned. But I learned a lot. I did the books. I did the pro formas. I did the business plan. I did the marketing. I did the software development because we had inspectors who needed a laptop to go around and record their findings. And I learned so much 
that I was hired by a software company in my first product manager job. They thought of me maybe as a marketer because that's where I had most of my experience to date. But they also saw that I knew how to be an entrepreneur and think as a business person, even if we hadn't been successful. The funny thing about it is I didn't really realize what the job was about. I thought it was another marketing sort of job. It turned out to be so much more. It turned out to be so much more interesting. It turned out to have not just the marketing, but all the other entrepreneurial bits and pieces that I had to wrangle as an entrepreneur as well. It was connected to sales. It was connected to software development. It was connected to marketing and even finance. It was connected to everything. And I can remember vividly thinking, wow, this is the best job I could possibly ever want to have. So that's where it started. I've been in software or adjacent spaces in product or in adjacent roles ever since. One of the things that many product managers in your audience will identify with is you as a product manager, you end up wearing a lot of hats because your job is to make the product successful. And that may require things to be done that nobody on your team has the authority, the skill, or the job to do. What I always say is, if that's the case, you're elected. And so I've ended up along the way of being a product person, being officially or unofficially in charge of partnerships, engineering, design, agile enablement, marketing, sales, you name it. That's also deepened my appreciation for the job. Thank you, Bruce. One of the things that I've noticed recently in the product management space, there's references to product manager and product leader. You mightn't have used that lingo in your practice, but in terms of what you did on a day-to-day basis, it sounds like it was a kind of a strategic role that you might have been operating across a number of teams. Is that the way it worked? At some points in time, yeah. When Mm -hmm. I was first a product manager, I had a squad of engineers and a designer that I worked with but I had to work across the other departments as well. I had Mm. to coordinate closely with the heads of or people in uh, IC roles of marketing and sales and finance and legal. At one point in my first job as a product manager, my strategy involved signing a bunch of partnerships for data suppliers to put data onto our platform, which we would then resell on their behalf. And over two years, I signed about 30 of those agreements and got to know our in-house counsel very well as we negotiated all of those agreements. I never thought about that, actually, because a lot of the time people talk about talking to customers and end users, but actually talking to suppliers as well to get content in a similar way to, I guess, Apple, when they had to get the music, they had the platform, but they needed to get the music, I guess, the same for Spotify. And it was very similar in that we were creating a marketplace for resale of this data, and I needed to convince these suppliers that it would be profitable for them and also safe that it would not cannibalize their existing. It's almost like eco-cycle management, the whole ecosystem rather. That's right. So one of your books was product manager versus project manager. And I do training from time to time and descaling for agility and Scrum, Kanban, Lean UX and stuff like that. And I find that even when I mentioned the expression product manager, people conflate it almost immediately to project manager. It's like I use different words. I said product and the person heard project. Yes. And you wrote a whole book on this. How would you summarize the difference? O'Reilly asked me, my publisher for Product Roadmaps Relaunched, asked me to write the book because it was a question that they were getting quite a lot. 
it is a common confusion. And I think it just comes down to not having heard of the term product management before. Most people have heard of a project manager. They have not heard of the other. So the two get conflated because they're almost the same spelling and one is more familiar. In my mind, there is a clear difference in terms of strategy versus tactics. In my mind, the job of the project manager is to ensure that we deliver on a plan, on a set of commitments to time, scope, and budget. And that's critical. A good product manager needs to depend on a good project manager for delivery on time, on budget, within the scope, et cetera. And so that job is all about managing resources, budgets, time, people, and scope. But the product manager's job is to ensure success. And that may be entirely dependent on the on-time delivery, the project manager's stuff, but probably it's broader than that. Probably it involves, well, also having the right packaging and pricing, also having selected the right customer and figured out what the right set of problems to solve for that customer are to get them to be happy and successful with the product and want to buy it and want to keep buying it if it's a subscription. And so the two jobs are complementary in that way. One is more strategic, more outcome oriented. We want the outcome of a successful customer and a successful product and a successful business built around that. And one of the means to that end is the delivery of the, the product itself. And that's what the project manager is responsible for, the output. Thank you, Bruce. And just as a follow-up question to that, a lot of people also get confused even about the word product. How do you describe product to people? Yeah, that's a really good question because in today's world, a product can be entirely intangible. Facebook is arguably a product. It's an app, but there's no physical object that you can touch. And Gmail, while it has a UI, is really a service, right? So is that a product? And I would say yes to that too. I would say that a product is your way of delivering value to a chosen customer, whatever that way is. Now, if we want to also differentiate it between forgetting about whether it's a physical object or software, if we want to differentiate it between a product and a service, the other aspect we need to put in is repeatability. So a product is something that you can scalably, repeatably supply to someone that delivers value to that other person. Whereas a service is very often, uh, I'm thinking of a custom service, is very often making something one time for one customer and you're not repeating it for another. So it's making something bespoke. Thank you. People often ask me about this as well, and I have a habit of oversimplifying. And sometimes I say to people about products that it's something that an external customer would recognize and they probably pay for it. It might be their money or their data, but someone pays for money or data in a sense. I like that, but it leaves out Facebook because the yeah. people who choose to use Facebook aren't paying for it. Also, it leaves out internal products. And I think that's another important thing to consider is many IT departments around the world are responsible for creating and maintaining products that their internal fellow employees use. And there's no money exchanging hands there. And unfortunately, sometimes the employees don't have any choice about using it. It's a monopoly within the company. Yeah. Sometimes they do though. Yeah. So that's worthwhile considering. There's one other kind of radical definition that I like. Radhika Dutt, a friend, wrote a book called Radical Product Thinking a year or two ago. And in it, she posits that the definition of a product is it's your way of changing the world. Oh, I like that. And I like that because if you think about it, that's actually right. It's a means 
for changing the world, changing the customer's world, and hopefully also changing the world of your company, making it successful. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, that's really useful insight. Just coming back to one of your books, Product Roadmaps Reloaded, How to Set Direction While Embracing Uncertainty. You summarized it in a talk in 2019 where you talked about having a kind of love-hate relationship with roadmaps. Hmm. And I wonder if you could start, first of all, with maybe what you think a roadmap is, because a lot of people also have a kind of preconceived idea of what it is. And I think you've got some ideas around that. Well, if you ask someone, what is a roadmap? Usually they say, it's a schedule of when features will be delivered. So it's features and dates. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with a schedule of feature delivery dates. In fact, I think you need that. It's called a delivery plan or a project plan. So it's the sort of thing your project manager or program manager might be in charge of. But it's a separate thing from what I think of as a proper roadmap, which again, making that distinction between project and product is more strategic. Think about it like a GPS. GPS is different than a simple set of turn-by-turn -turn directions. You tell the GPS the destination that you're headed for, and it plots a route and a set of turn-by-turn -turn directions for getting there, but it adjusts as you go based on conditions. And so if you learn, oh, there's traffic building up ahead, or there's construction, or if you stop off for pizza and you make a detour, the GPS will always recalculate the best next steps from right here toward your destination. Whereas a set of turn-by-turn -turn directions are fixed, and they may or may not be after the first few steps, the right thing to do next. Mm. And so a roadmap should be flexible in that way and frequently updated, at least quarterly, if not monthly. I have friends who basically will update a four quarters roadmap every month with the latest information. And by doing so, they're resetting the expectation that a roadmap is somehow a list of promises of future delivery dates to a forecast based on current information, like a weather forecast that is updated as new information arises. Now that said, what do we mean by the destination? What do you put into your roadmap GPS? And for me, you put in a customer-oriented vision of the future that you want to achieve. And so you describe a future world in which your product is successful because to go back to Radica, it changes the world for the customer in some positive and differentiated way. If you can describe that future world that you're achieving, then you can work backwards and describe the major steps that are gonna be required to get there. And that's your roadmap. When you talked about the different steps, if you like, vision, objectives, timeframe, disclaimer, mm. and themes are going to dig into these. If we start off with the vision, do you use time horizons, Bruce, for that? How do people figure out, like, are we looking at five years or here, like one to three years, six to nine months, what are we talking about here? What's your experience with that? It's different for different industries. I think the software industry can move faster than the hardware industry, for example. But I'm thinking that your vision is usually a few years out. It's something that's mm. going to take you a while to get. I usually tell people, think two or three years in terms of your vision. If you've got a next stage vision that's even more fantastical, that's going to take you five years, okay, that's maybe separate. I do like the notion of putting horizons in, but I'm thinking about horizons to reach your vision, maybe three steps to reach Got your it. Yeah. So as such, how would you almost break down that vision into more tangible objectives? 
that could be done in a shorter cycle or something like that so that you can see if you're iterating towards that vision or maybe even if that vision is wrong actually because a lot of the time we, we might learn stuff that it's unusual but it could happen I guess that we've got the wrong vision right so well, it's actually about? not that unusual most startups fail and that's because usually it might be that they simply run out of money it might be that the mm. technology doesn't work but the most common cause if you study the whole lean startup movement is that there's trying to solve a problem that nobody is willing to pay them for, that it's just not a big enough problem or a, more, a painful enough problem for enough people mm. that it's worth having a product in that space. And so a lot of these startups fail by putting their thing out there and then discovering it's not the right thing. It doesn't solve the problem or it's identified the wrong problem. So I think early stage discovery of what are the problems for your chosen customer? And would something that you could build adequately solve that problem? Not just adequately, actually, would it solve it better than whatever incumbent solution is, whatever the current solution that people use to address the problem is? Imagine a chronic medical condition that is treatable with a drug, but that drug has side effects and it's expensive and you have to take it forever. Another drug that has slightly different side effects, but you still have to take it forever and is priced similarly is not much of a substitute. I think that's not exciting. What would be exciting is a treatment that cures the condition entirely. And so you can stop taking any drugs or having any side effects. That would be a 10x superior differentiated solution that would take an existing painful problem and make a superior solution. We just touched on a topic that's near to me at the moment, which is the problem space, because while you're working out with the vision and then you got the business objectives that underpin that vision or have to iterate towards that, and you've got timeframes, like the way you've got now, next, later, it's a lovely pattern. What are we thinking you're doing now? What are we doing now? What are we thinking you're doing next and what might happen later? I really like that. And I've seen that in the Scrum.org Advanced Product Owner materials as well as a kind of a recommended pattern. But the problem space is interesting to me because until I met Indy Young a few weeks ago, I was of the view that sometimes if you go into the problem space, it's almost like big design up front and you're not getting any feedback from the market. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you've got people who do discovery and experiments and they meet customers and they get all excited mm -hmm. and then they do delivery. What can also happen with that as well, even if you use Lean Startup, Lean UX, all these approaches, you can go down the funnel very quickly, almost get myopic and go straight down into something. I don't know, just trying to strike that balance where how do I know I got the right problem and is this the right time and all that kind of stuff. Uh, how have you dealt with that kind of dilemma, I guess, Bruce? The roadmap really needs to be, I said the word flexible a moment ago, but mm. one of the key ways it needs to be flexible is to incorporate, to allow for, to give space to that kind of learning and discovery and finding out that you were wrong. Before you do a roadmap, I think you should get to know your customer and what problems they have that are worth solving, that they would pay mm. you to solve, to do your initial discovery. And there are great books on this. Teresa Torres recently came out with her new book, Continuous Discovery Habits. Mm. Highly recommend it. David Bland's Testing Business Ideas, another really good book. But once you have a sense for what are the problems to solve for your customer, you you now are in a position to do a roadmap. In fact, even if you're not 100% sure that you've got that list or in the right order, what you could do is you could put together a roadmap with your best guess and use that as a tool for discovery. Go and show it to a few of your customers. Hey, Mr. Customer, 
or potential customer. Here is our vision of a better future. And you are named in it, but you are the customer named in this better future. And here are the problems that we believe we need to solve in priority order based on how painful they are for you, how important they are for you. Did we get it right? Do you see yourself in this? Or did we leave out something? Or are they in the wrong order? Or did we misunderstand something about your situation, your life, or your job? And you can get very good feedback from folks in that situation when you are seeing how excited they get. I'm thinking of an interview I did with Steve Blank, and he described in enterprise B2B, actually creating a roadmap like that and using it as a pre-sale tool. He brought it to the potential enterprise customer. Will you sign a contract with me? And the customer said, you don't have a product. You just have a piece of paper. And he said, I know, but if we deliver on this, would you buy it? And the customer said, yes. And he said, okay, so sign here. If I never deliver it, you don't have to buy it. It's fully cancelable. But if I deliver it, then you're saying that you will buy it. And that's either a pre-order or a cancelable purchase order or a letter of intent that says, yes, this vision is compelling. And if you build it, I will come. I love Steve Blank's one-liner, no business plan survives the first interaction with the customer. That's right. Yeah, it's really cool. In your approach to roadmaps, we talked about vision and business objectives and timeframes. Then you go to the next level down, which is themes. So you go into problems and needs and so on, and objectives at a lower level, I'm guessing, in terms of, are you thinking about customer objectives at that point or outcomes? Actually, um, the way I think about it is themes are a problem statement usually, or a job to be done statement. I'm not religious about which yeah, format yeah. you use, but as long as the customer and what they want out of this is the main point of your mm -hmm. theme, then anything under that would be, well, how would the customer measure success? That's fine. So that's a leading indicator of their willingness to engage with and pay for your product is that they're using it and getting something out of it. And you can measure that. It also, ideally, the theme could incorporate many different possible solutions to the stated problem that you will test in turn until you find the one that really works in a differentiated way. And that's one of the reasons why the date ranges in a roadmap need to be flexible is you're testing. You don't know the result until you actually discover the result by testing. So you may put out a prototype, discover, as you were saying earlier, that it just does not solve the problem adequately. Or you may, in the worst case, discover that it solves the problem, but nobody cares and they're not willing to pay you for it or they're not willing to pay enough for it that you could have a profitable business because it costs you too much to deliver it. So then you've got to go back to the drawing board and come up with a solution that solves it in a way that still works for the customer, but on which you can build a profitable business. One thing I've observed, Bruce, with the discovery in particular, is a lot of people demonstrate what I refer to as execution bias. They have this idea, they've all these assumptions, they convert the testable hypothesis, they run the experiments. The experiment results aren't fantastic. And you and me, we might actually say we need to pivot or stop this. But they just keep going on. It's, no, this is still good. Metaverse is the answer to all the world's problems. So that's where we're going. Have you seen that happening? And if so, how have you dealt with people getting to pull out of that? This is Melissa Perry's premise in her book, The Build Trap, that we know as an industry, we're supposed to build, test, and learn, and keep iterating until we've got something that tests well that really does have good results and grows our business. But as an industry, we generally don't do that. We know we're supposed to, but as an industry, instead of build, test, learn, we do build, 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 or build, ship, build, ship, build, ship. And we've seldom stopped to look back. I see teams all the time building toward a ship 
date and I say, this is great. This is exciting. I can't wait to see what the results are. You've of course, instrumented your product to see how customers are using it, how many are using it, how frequently they're using it. And they're like, yeah, we meant to, but we cut that feature for time. And I'm like, okay, but how will you know if what you have built is successful? And usually they stammer and hem and haw at that point because they don't have a good answer to that. But there is often, I'm going to point a finger here, pressure from senior leadership in a company to ship. And that pressure forces teams to compromise on really what is good for the long-term health of the product and of the company. Yeah, I've seen that too. When I'm helping people, when they're trying to figure out a forecast or something like that, when will it be done is the most annoying question, but it's also an important question, isn't it? Yeah. And I've been using probabilistic forecasts, Monte Carlo probabilistic forecasts, but I've been doing it with health warnings. 85% chance we might deliver by this date, 15% chance we won't. And one of my peers, he uses this extra phrase, which is, and I'll give you a better forecast next week. Yeah. In other words, this one is wrong, you know. Our intelligence, our ability to forecast should improve as the deadline approaches. Yeah. And I find if we don't do something like that, even though it's still a bit smoke and mirrors, then there's loads of uncertainty. And actually getting on that because you talk about disclaimer as well. I'm curious how you manage that. But I prefer to do that than say, we don't know when it will be done, which is the right answer. Because I'm basically saying, I don't know the way I've said it to you a while ago. But in the diplomatic is all calculated. I'll give you a better one next week. But if I just say, I don't know, I feel that senior leaders are just going to make up a date that's impossible. And then we're all screwed, basically. See, so the senior leaders will attempt to fill that vacuum of their own yeah. expectation with a date. And so the key is to push back on them or to use a little judo and pivot them toward yeah. something good. So something good that I would describe is number one, keep the roadmap at a high enough level that it is problem-oriented rather than solution-oriented. Outcome mm -hmm. for the customer and outcome for the business, that's the business objectives oriented. And when you do that, it's very easy to make the argument that we don't know what we don't know, and we can't say when the outcome will be achieved because it's up to the customer. It's up to the customer to decide whether we have solved their problem well enough that they will buy the product. And so we're not going to retire the problems on the roadmap until the customer tells us, awesome, you solved my problem, move on. So that's why I prefer the now, next, and later. We're going to stay on the now things until the problems in the now column are solved, then we'll move to the next problems. Now that said, there's still a hunger for the date, right? Mm. So at the next level down of detail, there are specific features, UX changes, and other things unrelated to software, marketing campaigns, pricing changes, a demo at a conference, other things that are one level down in execution detail that could be on a project plan or a delivery plan. And those things, if they are near enough term, if they're in a window of certainty within six weeks, eight weeks, something like that, where we have 80, 90% confidence in what we yeah. can deliver when, those things can have dates. Yeah. Another technique I learned years ago as well was the transformation map where you got the time horizons getting more vague as the horizontal time axis elapsed time goes on. That's right. So we might talk about Q1, Q2, H2, 2023, and then 24, 25 together. Right. So they're still seeing stuff that looks like it's happening at a particular time, but it's like a bit of judo, I guess, as you put it. Essentially, we're still trying to set some expectations, but we're also trying to provide that disclaimer of uncertainty as well, that there's a load of stuff that we need to learn actually along the way. I, I think that's right. The roadmap is a learning instrument. The project plan is a visibility instrument. So 
I'm not going to go into OKR so much in this conversation, but I could see that it's something that you support, particularly when they come from an outcome perspective. And it's a great way to revisit how you're doing against your vision and having quarterly objectives that can all help. But something that really caught my attention in one of your talks was about getting stakeholder input for the roadmap. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Bruce? I think of the roadmap as a team sport. Really, I think it's not likely to work if it's an exercise by one genius product manager alone at their desk coming up with the plan and just saying, here it is, folks. And because you're always going to get the question, what about my favorite feature? Or what about this customer segment? Or what about what the competition is doing? Or what about the technical debt? All the different stakeholders within your organization have their own point of view or hobby horse about what should or shouldn't be on the roadmap. And rather than waiting until you have brought the roadmap tablets down from the mountain and having them ask you all these questions that you maybe haven't thought through in detail, or even if you have and you have a good answer, nonetheless, it's much harder to get buy-in from somebody if they've had no hand in the creation. So I find that you get a better result by considering more inputs, but you also get a better bought-in result from around your organization by bringing people into the process itself of creating the roadmap. So I recommend that you run a workshop internally, that you bring the right people to the table, representatives of engineering and design and data science and marketing and sales and finance and professional services into the roadmapping process and run it at the very beginning as a kind of a brainstorm. What do we believe our vision is? What do we believe the business objectives are? What do we believe the problems to be solved for this customer are? And in what order we should tackle them? And let's have a draft, as Jenna Basto, CEO of ProdPad, would say, a prototype of our strategy in the form of a roadmap. And then let's go test it out in the world and validate our assumptions or invalidate them. I can totally relate to that. In a lot of the work I do with visions, I tend to use the elevator pitch from Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, for who need what, whatever the name of the product is, a what that does what, what people might think it is, and what's the competitive advantage. And I might add a little twist as measured by to that as well as a bit of a cheat. But then for objectives, yeah, I agree. I also use the business problem statement. Sometimes I might use just freeform. But when I do this with product leaders or senior product owners, what I do is if I work with a product owner, not only have I done this with stakeholders, but I've also done with people people in the team, like the developers that might call it in Scrum. And I'd work with the product and I'd say, just like you said, we don't want to come down from Mount Sinai with these tablets saying, this is, here's the vision. We don't want to do that. What I want to say is, actually, we think this kind of sucks. Can you come up with a better one? Can we have a little bit of a competition here? <laughs> Not to come up with a better vision. And the same with the problem statement. I find 19 times out of 20, they always come up with something better. And like you say, it's lighting up people inside. It's inspiring everyone that feel they all own us, right? I just did this yesterday with a team of, I think we had about 16 people in the room from one company, all different disciplines, different departments, and so on. And they each took a particular, this is B2B, so they each had a particular Mm. type of user with a particular set of jobs to be done. And they went off in Zoom breakout rooms, as we do today, and workshopped the vision for their customer within the overall customer types and came back. And many of their first attempts were a bit pedestrian. We provide the best this, that, or the other that is fast and safe and easy. And they challenged, though, each other to get better. They said, you know what? Any competitor could say that. What's our unique reason for being able to serve this customer well? And let's not just talk about the aspects of our product. Let's talk about 
the result for the customer of using our product, the benefit, right? I like to say Mario doesn't really want the power up in Super Mario Brothers. He wants the power. Yeah. Now the power up is the means, then, but yeah. he wants to be Super Mario, be twice as big, twice as fast, invulnerable, and shoot fireballs so he can win. And when I said that, they all went back to the drawing board and they came back inspired and said, oh yeah, this is what you can do with our product. You are going to be so successful and so awesome because you went with us. Yeah. It's like starting with why, isn't it? It's like the Simon Sinek. One of my favorite books. Yeah. Stakeholder management, you're writing a book about that at the moment. And you mentioned some influencing books that are quite old and without giving it away, what would be the kind of headline things that maybe we can expect in your book? Many of our product management folks who will be listening or anybody else who has to deal with input from others around the company, particularly executives, will identify with the situation where you're being asked to add something to the roadmap. You're being asked to do a feature or satisfy the unique needs of one customer. And we often feel helpless in that situation. Some executive with authority is telling us to do this. And yet our job is to make the product successful. So it feels like we're in conflict. It feels like we're in a no-win situation. And the book is about how to have the company win in those situations. It's about how to set up the conditions such that you can have a logical goal-oriented alignment session with such an executive acting, even though they are higher placed in the organization, acting as a peer to resolve that conflict. And so we've got a bunch of techniques, some of which will be obvious to experienced product people like, have you actually set strategic objectives for your product? Do you have a roadmap of record? If you've got those things in place, then you can refer back to them and say, okay, you have an idea for a feature. I respect that. First question, what problem are you trying to solve with this feature? Is it a problem for us? In which case, let's look at the business objectives and see mm. if that's a problem we're really trying to solve for our business. Is it a problem for the customer? In which case, let's look at our themes and our roadmap and see, is this one of the problems that we are trying to solve? Oh, yes, it is. It's actually a solution to one of the customer's problems. Let's look at the other two or three or four ideas that we have in the queue to test for that particular problem. Where does this fit? Is it actually already there in some form? Or is it more promising or less promising than some of the others? Is it difficult for us to test or not? Let's put a framework like that around the conversation and let's investigate it. The answer to where does this fit? Rather than yes or no, it's where does it fit? And let's investigate that together. You can use the Socratic method, but I think it's important to not use it sarcastically. Yeah. Not, not, not use it as a weapon, but as a real tool for discovery, for mutual and respectful discovery, especially when you're dealing with someone higher up in the organization than you. That's one really key aspect to it. There are lots of other ones too. Like I mentioned doing a workshop to pull together a roadmap as a team effort that you get a lot of stakeholder alignment by doing that. And then the person from the marketing team who is in your roadmaps workshop can defend and represent the decisions of that group to the rest of the marketing team, for example. Thank you, Bruce. When can we expect a new book to come out roughly? Early next year. Okay, cool. Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for inspiring us with your wisdom. We're looking forward to hearing more from you and Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you would like your voice message to be featured on a future podcast episode, uh, please leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash x agility forward slash message. 
That's anchor.fm forward slash x agility forward slash message. Thank you.